Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. The American diplomat Ray Naylor joined me on the podcast about a year ago to tell me about his debut novel, The Mountain Under the Sea, a philosophical thriller about the alien minds of octopuses. He's returning in this episode to talk about a new novella, The Tusks of Extinction. Tusks depicts an attempt by Russian scientists to resurrect the woolly mammoth, with subplots exploring elephant hunting for sport and for profit. It's very much a thematic companion piece to the earlier novel, so as they say, if you like that, you'll love this one. I certainly did. Here's my conversation with Ray. Ray Naylor, welcome back to the How To Academy podcast. Thank you for having me again. Last year, we talked about your debut novel, The Mountain Under the Sea. And at the end of the podcast, you said you had another long work ready. And here we are talking about it, The Tusks of Extinction. I don't know what your elevator pitch for the book is. Mine is, it's Jurassic Park, but with mammoths and ideas. <laughs> um, how would you describe it? That's, that's quite, I, I like your pitch. That's awesome. Uh, you know, I, I would say that it is an ice core of my thinking about em, like embodiment and how it affects the way we see the world. That's one thing. And then it's kind of my my reaction to the time I spent working on um, on, on elephant uh, ivory trafficking in, in Vietnam and how that gets worked through a science fiction writer's mind. But I think your pitch is much better than mine. I can never come up with like a clean way to describe uh, my, my work in two or three sentences. And I feel like I need to just sit down sometime. Yeah, just, just just drop me an email next time and I'll, I'll come up with something. I can't do the writing of the story, but I'm good at... <laughs> <laughs> I'm good at selling, Ray. <laughs> I like yours because usually people just take two sometimes seemingly random books and say, oh, it's like this and this put together, which I, I kind of... is a trend I'm not a big fan of. Um, I think... I think um, it's an industry formula that's recognised, though, isn't it? If it's a little, yeah. even if a little trite. Catch us up on your life since last year. You told us last year that you often uh, move faster than your bio, um, and you are a globe-trotting diplomat, as I'm sure regular listeners will remember. So, where are you now? I am still in Washington D.C. I uh, I took another job. I took a job now as a diplomat in residence, visiting scholar at uh, the George Washington University in their Institute of International Science and Technology Policy. So I'm still here um, this time. So I didn't too much outrun uh, my bio. And then my plan is to actually stay here for, for a while, um, maybe maybe grow a few sort of roots. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> well, when, when we're doing the interview for next year's book, you can let me know how that's going. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> As an American diplomat, you specialize in Russia. You speak Russian. Um, you've lived and worked in Moscow, and you must have some good stories about that. Can you give us a sense of what your life in Moscow was like? The relevance being that Tusks is set in Russia, and the protagonist is Russian. And one would have thought that you're drawing on that experience a bit here, indirectly. Yeah, so I haven't, I haven't uh, much worked on, on Russia as a diplomat, and uh, my time in Moscow was well before my my time with the Foreign Service. I lived there from 
2000 and uh, in 2007 and 2008. And then before that in 2005. So I lived there twice uh, in Moscow, but not just in Moscow. I got to travel pretty much all over the country, which was great. Um, got to see what the rest of Russia was, was like, which is very different from what life is like in Moscow. And yeah, this book is drawing, of course, heavily from, from that experience. Also from uh, the experience of traveling in Siberia, which is, uh, my wife is from Tomsk, uh, which is a Siberian city. And so we spent some time exploring that area as well. Uh, so I have that kind of firmly in my in my brain. And as a speaker of Russian, of course, that gets you know daily practice still, um, I think a lot of that informs this book. I sort, sort of say that, you know, at some point, I suppose I'll have also written through all of my childhood obsessions, you know, of which like polar exploration and mammoths are, are one, the octopus was another, and then I'll probably run out of novel ideas. But so far, they take long enough to write out that that hasn't happened yet. So yeah, this is, I mean, just the, I, I, I still can sort of time travel back to that time in Moscow and get that feeling of being in, in, in Russia anytime I want to. And so I also wanted to make sure I'm writing all of these books while, while those things are still fresh. What took you then to Russia originally, if not diplomatic duty? So I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Turkmenistan, and it's kind of a funny story. I, I um, I'm originally in Turkmen when I came there in my Peace Corps training. And then when I actually got to my work site, everyone that I worked with said, oh, you speak Turkmen, that's really cute we all speak Russian because none of us are actually Turkmen. And uh, they were mostly from Azerbaijan or Armenia have been living in Turkmenistan for a long time. But, you know, they were part of this mobile sort of post-Soviet intelligentsia. And so they said, well, it's time to teach you Russian. So, you know, they did. And uh, over the next couple of years, I got decent, at least in Russian. And then I decided I wanted to stay overseas. So I took a job recruiting for a company called American Councils for International Education, basically going around Russia, interviewing high school students for an exchange program where they would spend a year in the US. Can you unpack some of the myths about life in Russia and even Russian people that we have in the West? Uh, what did you find your experience of Russian culture was like compared to American culture? Yeah, it's it's, it's interesting to, you know, we I, I kind of go back and forth about trying to do things like this, like trying to help people better understand Russian culture. Because in the end, I think sort of like the longer you live in a place and the more you live with people from that place, the more your sense of that, you, you kind of pass through these phases, let's say. Initially, you're like, I understand this place. And I could tell other people, you know, what it's like. And then you sort of get to um, I know so many people from here that I no longer understand anything about this place. And in fact, it just seems like anywhere else, like kind of a confusing mass of different ways of of thinking about the world, you know, et cetera. But, you know, in general, what I would say is um, I have a lot of good friends from that region, from Russia and from Central Asia, where I spent a lot, a lot of time from the sort of former Soviet republics. And they, like most people in the world, I think, are a little bit difficult to get to know at first. And then once you become their friend, you sort of have that friendship for the rest of your life. And it's it's something that as long as you do your part in nurturing it, you'll always have. 
One of the problems that I think I find with Americans is that we're somewhat the opposite. Um, someone I was recently talked to said, Americans are like peaches, like initially really kind of soft and welcoming. And, you know, they seem so friendly. And then you get to this hard core in them that you just can't get beyond. And it's quite surprising. You know, Russians are a little bit more like, let's say, I don't know, an egg, right? You know, you, you once you crack through that shell, the inside is quite soft and uh and you find that they're 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 sort of the opposite you once you get to know them um they're very forthcoming and and friendship is less transactional than it can be here uh in the u.s i, I won't speak for the whole west I'll, I'll stick to my own my own knowledge but less transactional and less based around just liking some mutual activity you know it's like oh we're friends because we play on the same football team or we, you know, go climbing together or something. And as soon as you stop climbing or playing football, that person kind of goes poof and <laughs> disappears. So there's that. And then I think it's, you know, the other thing is, I mean, it's quite clear that it's a country that's been very unfortunate in, in its uh, history. And, and I think that, you know, it's people do carry a sense with them of this kind of tragedy of, of Russian political life and and what has happened uh to them and sometimes it seems to them and it seems to outsiders probably too like almost like a bad joke like it's like every time they have some moment of reform you know uh like in 1917 when it seemed like the czar was going to be replaced by democracy right and then lenin comes along and crushes that idea right destroys the Russian Duma, drives democracy out of Russia for decades afterwards. It just seems like every time they have a chance to raise their head up, something happens. And it's quite often, it's easy to blame it on some sort of cyclical, intrinsic thing in their in their culture. But sometimes it also just seems like a, what they would call like a, a black swan event, you know, like the appearance of some particular person who just comes, brings it all crashing down. I mean, this novel set a couple of hundred years in the future and things still aren't going well. Right. Are you worried about receiving public censure for depicting Russian culture too romantically? Uh, well, I don't think I, de I depict it romantically. Um, no, I'm not. I'm not worried about that kind of censure. Um, I'm not. Not at all. Uh, I, I mean, I think I just, if anything, depict everyone that I write about consistently as real people with uh with real complications and uh, real concerns you know people say how do you write about cultures that are different from your own and what i tell them is uh with a massive amount of of research personal knowledge and respect for uh for other human beings uh, there's not a single person on earth who truly has a culture that is like your own since we're all these sort of constellations and increasingly so, right, of difference and uh, and realized difference as the world sort of frees up a little bit. Every unique person on this earth is, is hard to write, and that's the way that it ought to be. So, you know, this is a place that I know well, but that doesn't mean that I just start out to, you know, you know with some sort of confidence. I think, I, you know, you start out from a place of of feeling like you have a lot more to learn. And, you know, I point out, too, that the the main character is not a Russian. The main character is a Tatar, 
And, you know, one of the things that I also wanted to, to kind of point out is that this is a very big, diverse country with a lot of people in it. And the titular ethnicity are not the only people living in that space. And there's certainly a lot more uh, going on that the West is pretty, pretty ignorant of. I mean, we, you know, have a have a long history of referring to everyone who comes from this enormous space and even the Soviet space as Russian, right? When there were so many different people there. Tusks is an entertainment. It's a high concept thriller, but there is real anger coming through, and that is your disgust towards poaching and the ivory trade. You mentioned earlier this coming to your attention in Vietnam. Can you tell us a bit more about that and um, what you learned about the ivory trade and your research for this book? Yeah, so while I was working in, in Vietnam as the environment, science, technology, and, and health officer down at the consulate in, in Ho Chi Minh City, we encountered the ivory trade quite a bit. And uh, it's so Vietnam is one of the through trafficking countries for elephant ivory, also a destination country. Um, and one of the things that was happening while I was in Vietnam was that the ivory price had gone up so much that it had become profitable actually to go on a, to send someone to go on a big game hunting expedition and legally hunt elephants. Uh, and, uh, you, the, the cost of that, ex, that expedition would be less than the ivory you could get back if you could manage to, you know, uh, evade some of the, some of the really, to be honest, weak restrictions around the trading in ivory that you've taken off uh, an, an elephant that you've killed in, in one of these big game ex expeditions. So something that was happening in Vietnam that I, that was fascinating was that they were using sex workers to go to Africa to, to Africa on big game expeditions, several different countries in Africa, um, and hunt elephants and then bring the ivory back to Vietnam, which was an amazing sort of linkage of traffickings, right? So you had quite often a trafficked person being then sent in the guise of some kind of hunter, and it was often really patently ridiculous, to this place where they were they were basically just given a gun helped to point it at this elephant, killed the elephant. Then they have like a picture of, of this poor, you know, sex worker standing with this elephant that they've, they've killed. Then they would bring the trophy back to Vietnam where it would be then uh, sent on into this network of ivory trafficking. So it was like the full circle of, you know, all of this human exploitation tied up with this, this the destruction of these magnificent animals for this virtually worthless you know, substance which had been just driven up in value by uh, by a market that made absolutely no sense. I mean, it has so many, there were so many tragic ways in which it was linked to our whole way of looking at each other and at the world. Um, and it stuck with me for a really long time, but I didn't exactly know where to put it. And I think when it really started to click was when also elephant ivory became so valuable that people started hunting for mammoth tusks in, in the Arctic. And that mammoth, mammoth tusk trade, interestingly enough, started reinvigorating the illegal elephant ivory trade because it was very difficult to tell mammoth tusks from elephant tusks. You could just say that your 
elephant tusk was um, indeed a mammoth tusk. And, and so again, you had these sort of cycles, this, this like weird feedback loops between all of this bizarre, you know, um, exploitative activity. And the, the tusk hunters in, in the far north were some of the most desperate people as well. Of course, this is, you know, this is a, a dangerous and laborious, uh, you know, activity, basically using fire hoses to blow mud quite often away from riverbanks and then, you know, create these caves and pull these bones out of them. And those caves collapse on people all the time. I mean, it was really this, again, this kind of uh, just cycle of, of poverty and violence and exploitation mixed up with people's weird desires to have this pointless commodity, right? This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered, and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p, with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before. Well, we're going to talk about the fact that in your book, The Mammoths Fight Back, in a minute. But I first wanted to ask how you strike a balance as the author of a work of fiction between political agitation and the need to tell a gripping story. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it sort of started with The Mountain and the Sea. Someone said, oh, I don't think it's really possible to write a book that's both gripping and readable and has any sort of real philosophical content. And I kind of said, well, I don't. I don't think that that's correct. I think I think it can be done. I think that a book can have a commitment to really deep ideas, but then at the same time be, you know, done in such a way that it holds people's interest and in, and is entertaining. And I and I in fact I feel like that's the history of the novel in many ways. That that the the novel has always been really engaged with the idea at its at its core. I mean, I find let's go look at heart of darkness right which is like a really gripping depiction of of this travel up river right and and then also is deeply invested in human concerns and and i think you know i would actually say that that in general joseph conrad would be a good model for that he ha he does write these gripping thrillers like the secret sharer and and uh, all of these you know books that are that I would I would say you know you would call thrillers. Of course, their language is very different, but they're also deeply engaged in politics, uh, philosophy, etc. What what I would I guess my counter question is, and maybe maybe you can answer this. I don't know, but probably you can. Why why is there this insistence that that fiction be and especially genre fiction be disengaged from our modern concerns? I would say, as a genre fiction snob that perhaps it's literary fiction which has been stripped of philosophical content 
And mm. genre fiction has, at least to an extent, continued the tradition of the novel of ideas, which is also entertaining. And your work maybe exemplifies that. But I am a genre snob. So um, I don't want to speak for the whole of the <laughs> the whole of the literati. Let's talk about elephants and mammoths. Everyone knows that an elephant never forgets, but your depiction of elephant memory is different to the eidetic memory you dramatised in Mountain Under the Sea, uh, because it's sensory. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so I, I was doing research on elephants uh, for the book. I, I have this kind of, you know, I have a you have, you have an idea and an interest. And I'm always kind of scouting around for for new, interesting ways of looking at the, at the world, which I think is sort of the key to the key for me to an interesting book is finding some angle in to uh, to the world, something people haven't thought about too much before or hasn't been overthought. And um, while I was doing the research on elephants, I, I discovered that they, you know, quite often use this organ in their mouth. Uh, to sort of taste the world and it appears to lead directly to some, to their like memory center. So the observation was that that elephants will, when they come upon the dung of another elephant, quite often taste it and then stand there. They'll, they'll sort of touch it and they'll put it in the their trunk into the roof of their mouth and then they'll stand there sort of clearly filtering information right remembering something making some sort of like sound swaying back and forth and kind of thinking and then they will either quite often go and try to follow that elephant or turn and, and go in another direction based on previous encounters and i thought that's it's a really fascinating idea we all of course have these um sort of stereotyped ideas about elephants as having these perfect memories and i think the those ideas come from human knowledge, probably even pre, say, scientific knowledge of elephants. I mean, I think one thing that's really worth remembering about elephants is that Europeans a thousand years ago, or let's say more like 2,000 years ago, probably would have had a lot more contact with elephants in a lot different in different situations than they do now. So you wouldn't have seen them, of course, in zoos, which is the only place that we really encounter them, but you would have seen them in armies, right? Uh, in many places in, in, in Europe. And you would have seen them as both an animal and an animal that carries a sense of sort of, uh, you know, this I always put this word very much in quotes, like some exotic kind of animal, but also an, 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 an instrument of warfare, right? Like uh, literally like the juggernaut, right? You know, this, this, um, this instrument used by the Romans and, and used by other armies or the prize of a, of a Sultan. Right. Um, but th these were animals that people kind of had access to and, and lived whole lives around and, and mm -hmm. lived in Melbourne. So, so we have a, we have a pretty good sense, I think of elephants as, as, uh, as humans. And I thought exploring that connection kind of brought me back to human memory and its connection to smell and, and sort of sensory memories and since what I'm, you know, one of the things that I'm constructing in the book is kind of a hybrid, right? Um, it allowed me a way to to talk about human memory as well and how it shapes us as people. Let's just explain that for listeners. For context, the heroine of the novel has her mind uploaded into a cloned mammoth body. And uh, she's given the task of teaching cloned mammoths 
how to be mammoths because uh, they don't have the natural evolved sense of, of, of what they should do as organisms in their native environment. They're sort of zoo-trained animals. Can you tell us what the relationship is between a mammoth and a modern-day elephant? I think that what people misunderstand about de-extinction, to kind of back this up, is that uh, you can't bring anything back. What you can do is assemble something that is new, that has some of the genetic traits of something that existed before. So, first of all, the formation of a species isn't all because of its DNA. Uh, some of it is because of what happens during gestation in the womb. And there's this really complex you know, interactive building process that goes into making an individual in any species. So unless you have access to an artificial womb of some of some kind, which um, we don't, and which I don't think that we would even in a, in a few hundred years, um, you're going to have a mother that is not the same as the animal that you're trying to bring back, which raises all kinds of, of challenges, but also means that, you know, it, fundamentally, if you bring back bring back really, again, in sort of scare quotes, right? You bring back the mammoth, you're not doing that. You're bringing back some kind of a hybrid that has mammoth-like things about it. But it's also the part that people forget about, about animals quite often is that, you know, a lot of their behaviors are not instinctual. instinctual. They are, they're learned. And especially with animals that live quite a long time and that actually have a relationship with their parents, the ways that, that elephants do with a wider sort of family uh, group they learn a lot from from the other members of their of their group, and especially from the generations that have come before. So, the a mammoth wouldn't know what it was to be a mammoth. Um, that's not something that they could know. You're kind of imagine taking a person and just bringing them into a world in which no other people exist, and then expecting them to know what it's like to be a human being. Well, they wouldn't know the first thing about it, and. An elephant wouldn't know what it was like really to be an elephant if you separated it from its parents and, and brought it up in a different context. Um, so she is kind of placed to help mammoths understand how to be mammoths, right? One of the great things about human beings is that we can learn things and retain them in ways that um, that other species, because they don't have access to symbolic language and writing and things like that, cannot. So once they're oral, let's say, just call it, you know, oral tradition, right? They're passed down tradition, they're physical traditions, um, they're, they're um, here and now very present culture is broken. There's no way for it to be recovered. And what, what Damira, the, the protagonist is doing is trying to help the mammoth recover a, or these new sort of hybrid beings like these chimeras, right? Recover a sense of what it would be to be a mammoth so that they can thrive. We know you're a diplomat and not a scientist, but how would one resurrect a mammoth? Well, what you would need to do is you would need to piece together all of the um, available DNA that you would gain from uh, mammoth corpses that you pulled out of the, the ice. You would need to fill in the gaps of that DNA with uh, something similar, probably with elephant DNA, something like that, something you had access to that wasn't damaged because DNA is damaged quite easily. And so it's not like you're going to be able to draw a complete um, DNA sequence out of, out of the ice. 
So then you would fill in the gaps and, you know, Michael Crichton was, was pretty good about this, right? Like with the dinosaurs, they fill in the gaps with frog DNA and that allows the dinosaurs to change their genders, which sounds like a little bit of a cheap trick until you realize that just recently we witnessed a Komodo dragon change its gender when it appeared on, on an Island alone and become a female who then laid an egg right? and fertilized herself and laid an egg to make more Komodo dragons. So we know we're not Komodo dragon. It was, um, uh, an iguana of something. I'm, I'm forgetting exactly what the species was, but li lizards can do this. Fish can do this. Many species can do this. Anyway, getting back to how you make a mammoth. So you fill in the DNA with, with probably elephant DNA, probably modern uh, elephants. And then you have to um, create uh, a viable fetus and, uh, and gestate that in an elephant. And that that's where you're gonna you're gonna put it basically is in an elephant and then that elephant gives birth to this chimera you know this sort of half elephant half mammoth which hopefully has enough mammoth to make it seem or be able to behave in the way that a mammoth does and then you would have to figure out a way to get that mammoth to survive in an alien environment that was very alien from it and that is where the novel picks up uh, why would one want to resurrect a mammoth yeah, this is this I think is a great question, and I think it's it's kind of one of the questions that the 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 book sort of addresses in in an oblique way because I don't have a I don't have a great answer to this question. I guess my question always is okay, why not focus energy on saving what we have? Why not use all of these all of this science to bring back from the brink of extinction or bring back from recent extinction animals that still have a niche? on earth um one of the problems with the mammoth right bringing back the mammoth is that there are all these other animals that are missing that the mammoth were a part of the mammoth's world what about the woolly rhinoceros what about the giant sloth what about you know all of these what about the cave bears and you know the saber-toothed tiger and all of these other ice age you know animals are you gonna bring back the ice age right um and along with the mammoth uh, there's some arguments that that the mammoth helped would help with climate change um, by sort of extending uh, the uh, snow coverage that it would, you know, there's a lot of arguments for it. I don't think any of them are entirely convincing. I think the reason that you bring the mammoth back is the same reason that human beings do anything. And I, and I, I think this is, this is in, uh, it's in the mountain in the sea. So I'm sort of paraphrasing one of, you know, myself, like the great and terrible thing about human beings is that we will always do what we're capable of. Right. And it's it's it can be quite a horrifying, you know, with horrifying results sometimes. But um, there's no stopping um, in many ways people from doing these kinds of things. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On which note, tech billionaires are everywhere in science fiction at the moment, and they are rarely the heroes, including in Tusks. Yeah, so uh, so there is, you know, in Tusks, this legal uh, hunting expedition going on. And, uh, and one of the things that I 
was sort of fascinated. I'm sort of fascinated by as, and especially like, I guess like as a, as a man, I'm really fascinated by men who think that going and, and killing an animal, usually a very rare one or a very difficult to, to get to one is just the most masculine thing that you could possibly do. Um, it's a, it's a kind of masculinity like, that I just completely, I find totally alien to me and completely disagree with. It seems to be the opposite to me of masculinity in a way. Like, Wait, Ray, are you suggesting that you've never shot any animal? <laughs> I, <laughs> never shot an elephant? No, no. <laughs> Shockingly. <laughs> no. I actually had to, and it was really, it was really, um, most, some of the most disturbing research I had to do was to actually research how to shoot an elephant. Um, because that's one of the, the things that happens, you know, in the book is, is you have someone being sort of told how to kill an elephant correctly. So I had to go to like the websites of these big game hunters and read through like how you kill an elephant. Yeah, I, I, I'm fascinated by that kind of weird, abstracted violence. And I remember very distinctly listening to the to a conversation, all these big game hunters who were going after the Marco Polo sheep in Kyrgyzstan when I was living in Kyrgyzstan and thinking, man, you've come a long way just to destroy something so wonderful, right? It's just such an odd thing. Like you've spent tens of thousands of dollars and gone through so much effort to kill this animal that all you had to do, you know, to leave it alone was not spend tens of thousands of dollars and come here and kill it. You know, it's just such a bizarre thing. Do you understand it? I mean, you've intellectualized it. And in the novel, one of the characters understands the appeal, quote unquote, of killing mammoths on an intellectual level, but not on a phenomenological level. Do you understand it on that level? I don't. And I realized reading Tusks that I didn't. And I was asking my uh, best friend about it uh, while reading the book, and he had no real emotional grasp on, on the appeal. And would you say that was something that you got to grips with over writing the novel or something that you continue to struggle with? No, I don't understand it. Um, I, I don't. But not understanding something doesn't stop you from being able to represent it, right? Like, I, I, I don't understand it, but I can, I can go and find things written by people who understand it and incorporate that into my research. It's It's kind of similar to, like, I don't, I don't understand how an octopus's brain works exactly, but I can I could read a lot about it and I can study it and I can get I can represent this alien thing on the page, I think, pretty well. But I would say this is like harder than trying to represent an octopus's mind in many ways, because I just it's also it's not 1930 anymore. Right. Like, like we're not Hemingway thinking these things are glorious and living in a culture where where, you know, these things are thought of as glorious. We live in a completely different space and 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 we look at the environment and know things about the environment that they just never could have known and and i think a lot of people found their behavior repulsive back then but much more so now so no i totally don't i, I don't i do think there's something masochistic in a sense about it and that's what i kind of tried to bring out like there's something self-destructive in killing something beautiful and um and there's something that just strips away the meaning of existence and so that's why i sort of linger on on some of those moments in the in the character who's who's doing this you know um in the way that it is a kind of 
I think there's just a kind of self-hatred. I think you saw it. I think you really do see it in, in Hemingway, for example. There is a self-loathing there in some of the short stories about big game hunting that really comes out. This sense of pointlessness and and um, and just horror at it. And then there's a sense of delusion, I think, in a lot of um, hunting literature that uh, the animal is equally dangerous to you. Yes. The, the man with the gun. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, and I, I think this is in, in, in the character of Sviatoslav, who's the poacher's, you know, son. That's what he's, he basically says, like that killing animals is easy. Like you have this gun and you just go and you learn how to shoot and that's not hard to learn either. And then you go and kill them because you have this technology that they don't. And, and you know, how is it, how does it attach, how is there any glory or, or interest attached to doing this thing? It's, um, uh, it would be, you know, if you killed them maybe with your bare hands, I guess, like then that would be some kind of macho, you know, accomplishment. But again, you're still back to like, why, why? Yeah, <laughs> your your tech billionaire has his own special gun as well. He won't even use a normal gun. He wants to use his bespoke tech billionaire gun, which is the best gun. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. To make it even easier. Oh my god! I, if only I had my special gun. <laughs> 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 um, yes i can uh, i can clearly imagine this in my in my head you know <laughs> like the, the tech billionaire with his special gun that he's done all his research on and uh you know had made for him and all all of this all this stuff yeah i um no i i mean you can't relate to everyone right and there's plenty of people on 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 earth that i just can't that's the difficulty of communication and that's sort of we may have talked about this a little bit when we we're talking about the mountain and the sea is what I've always found unconvincing about these ideas that we could speak to another species is that we can't half the time, maybe more than half the time, even communicate effectively with one another. And so what kind of hubris leads us to believe that we'd be able to speak to anyone else, right? I want to talk about another dimension of the, the tech billionaire going on a mammoth hunt plotline, which is the moral quandary of accepting money from the rich and powerful in order to finance something you believe is scientifically worthwhile or a necessity politically or for some other reason, some something that you believe is good. How do you, Ray Naylor, the diplomat who has seen much of the world and thought about this a lot, think about those kinds of quandaries? Have you seen them in your professional life or is this something you're just imagining as a thought experiment for this one work of literature? Oh, no, I think it's something woven through all of our lives, right? So um, as an academic, you probably work at an institution that's that's embedded in this system. And uh, and as, uh, I mean, in any profession, right, we're kind of woven into exploitative systems and trying to make the best of them. I, I think some of the most fascinating characters for me and this was certainly true of Ha from the Mountain and the Sea, and it's true of of, uh, of Demira, and true of true of most of the characters I write. Is I try to write from that sense of people entangled in systems that they don't necessarily agree with. Uh, and in the new book that I'm that I'm writing right now, I mean, there's a character that's that basically, you know, his only opposition to the the system that he's involved in is just not sharing its goals. Right. Like that's that's the only opposition he, he can allow himself is simply not to want the things that it wants. I mean, I think we're all and it's hard to admit how how entangled we are in, in, in these things, but we're all there. 
And, um, and so this is maybe just a more extreme way of asking that question. I don't have an answer to that question. I'm tangled up in systems that I don't agree with. I'm, I'm tangled up in all sorts of exploitative, uh, you know, environments. I mean, the city, just the urban space, right. Um, is a system of inequalities and, uh, it rewards certain kinds of living and, and punishes other people for, um, for their backgrounds, their, you know, race, their desires, their, you know, whatever, you can name any sort of difference, right? And it's a punishable difference in many ways. So, so I think it's, it's kind of a way of, of, of my own self meditation on compromise, like we have to at some point admit that we are within systems that don't allow us to be as good as we might want to be if that's what we're looking looking uh for i mean you know if you were gonna talk about the in the buddhist path right it would be like right employment right you know right work um it's it's a it's a difficulty i think everyone faces and i really yeah i don't mean to point out academia in particular but it's just it's it's a really good example of um the ways in which extremely progressive people right are tangled up in in systems and in institutions that are often damaging in 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 other ways right even to knowledge production i mean and before that, you, before you worked in academia you worked for the american government so <laughs> yeah yeah so so you know i mean yeah like uh you, you don't agree with everything that that uh that your that your system does but i guess my my only sense for myself is that you you carve out a place in which you feel that you are doing good and that you are contributing somehow to some kind of overall uh, benefit, right? And you try to look at the very nuanced balances in that, right? Um, am I am I able to help people? Am I able to be uh, of use, you know, in a, in a good way uh, in this world? It's hard. It's hard. Well, Ray, you've alluded to it already. But dare I ask, what's next for you writing-wise? Are we going to see you again this time next year? Uh, yes, I think you're going to see me again next year. <laughs> so so I am finishing up uh, the next book. And, um, well, finishing up meaning, like, I've already sold it. It's uh, it's getting scheduled. I'm just doing the, the obligatory, you know, rewrites and nudging things around and, and polishing that's part of that. And then I've already got the next idea uh, as well. So I am just pushing forward. You're way ahead. I mean, to be honest, I've got three ideas. Uh, and I had to decide which one is maybe next. It's kind of like this, you know, the, the, the TBR pile. The newest idea somehow always ends up on top. And... <laughs> And the other ones sort of sink down and then you're like oh well maybe not and you try to re re rewrite you know sort of like rearrange your stack of books or whatever but um yeah i i am probably at least two or three ideas ahead of myself in in, in novel writing right now um and they're, and they're all childhood obsessions coming back yeah to kind of to some extent they're kind of all childhood obsessions i mean i you know that I, I don't think I understood that phrase, the child is the father of the man, you know, until I really started writing and realizing that I've just been thinking about these things ever since I was a little kid, like the grain, the seeds were all there. And I probably formed some portion of 
of of that. Although I was I was very different from how I am now. There's still this common thread, and that's a bit of a mystery to me. You know how how I am still linked back to these kind of things. That I, th I think all writing is autobiographical to an yeah. extent. Even yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you were talking about like sort of um, the the books, the mountain and the sea, and tusks of extinction being kind of linked to one another in a way um, thematically. And uh, might have been talking about this before we started, but um, I think that's really true. And I think that's true because they're both like like they're close to each other in the core sample, right? Of like these are these are my interests. And when I finished the mountain and the sea, I still had a lot of interests in in these things, and that's where my focus was. And so the next book was kind of going to be there. And then as my interests drift over time, the books will also change, you know, their interests. But there's certain things that I always am going to come back to. And I'm perfectly aware of that. You know, um, I'm never going to stop being interested in memory and its formative properties for individuals. I'm never going to be stop being interested in how we're tangled up in systems and, uh, you know, how you how you incorporate ideas of any sort of human freedom for motion in that in that tangle. Because I, I've, I refuse to believe in free will. At the same time, I completely refuse to believe in like a zero level of choice, right? And so the way that those two refusals play out is really important for me. And I think it always will be uh, in my characters, right? There's no point at which someone has zero choice, but there is a point at which one might want to ask oneself, you know, as a society, especially, is individual justice making sense, right? Given how little choice some people end up having due to what's been, you know, put before them, done to them, etc. Well, right. if, uh, if our listeners are interested in exploring that theme more, I would like to draw their attention to our debate between Daniel Dennett and Robert Sapolsky a couple of weeks ago on free will determinism and social justice. Um, you can also listen to it, Ray. You might, uh, you might enjoy ah, perfect. it. <laughs> yeah, I've listened to a bunch of those. And uh, and yeah, I, you know, as usual, I find myself going like, it's neither, it's neither. <laughs> it's neither, yeah, my, my position as well. Well, we'll find out more about your next uh, novel this time next year. But Ray Naylor, thank you very much for coming back on the How To Academy podcast. Thank you for having me again. It's been great. This episode of the podcast starred Ray Naylor and was produced and presented by me, Vas Christodoulou. I make the show with Nicole Wong and our editor, John Doughty. Next up, we've got Daniel Goleman on emotional intelligence and another acclaimed author of speculative fiction, Kelly Link. Till then, thanks for listening.